This is Africa Digest. Seventeen hundred hours Central African time. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, giving you news from an African perspective. We're broadcasting to you from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa, and we're online on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samor Mangesi in studio with Onelinskinsi, Nosilia Zuma, as well as Neto Chimani. Some top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. Cameroon government urged to intensify efforts to restore security, justice and the conditions for the resumption of normal life in the English-speaking regions. South Africans are digesting a mix of negative and positive news as the petrol price is set to rise at midnight. In economics, the World Bank forecasts Tanzania's economy to grow 5.8% in 2020. And lastly in sport, the 2019 Kosafa Men's Under-20 Championship gets underway tomorrow with hosts Zambia taking on Botswana. But right now, let's cross on over to the news desk. Here's Onelinsinsi with your latest news bulletin. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Samora. Nigerian President Muhammadu Buhari has clarified that there is no fixed date to reopen the country's closed land borders. A tweet from the government's official handle quoted the president as saying there was no date for reopening borders that have been shut since August, triggering a trade crisis among its neighbors. The president added that the only condition that would precipitate a reopening will be when the reason for the closure is resolved. Weeks back, Nigeria issued borders banning the sale of fuel within a certain radius of its borders. The move received backlash by the government that has persisted in enforcing the matter. Meanwhile, judgment has been reserved in convicted Nigerian terrorist Henry Oka's application for leave to appeal his conviction and sentence in South Africa. That judgment will be delivered on the 20th of this month. Oka represented himself in the court. He was sentenced to 24 years imprisonment in March 2013 by the High Court in Johannesburg after he was convicted on the 13th count of terrorism. It related to two car bombs which were detonated in Nigeria in 2010 during the anniversary of that country's independence. The incident left 12 people dead and 36 injured. In the other incident, two car bombs went off. One person was killed and 11 injured in the attack. Zimbabwe's late president, Robert Mugabe, has left no will naming who's going to benefit from his remaining fortune. In October, Mugabe's daughter, Bona Chikoware, wrote to the master of the High Court seeking to register her father's estate. The BBC's Shinganyoka reports. Save for the 10 million US dollars in the bank, Robert Mugabe appears to have left a modest inheritance, seven properties and 10 cars, according to the state media. The registered estate does not list the farms allegedly acquired during the takeover of white-owned farms. The sprawling dairy business is also excluded. For decades, speculation swirled about Mr. Mugabe's wealth, rumors about a castle in Scotland, a million-dollar property in Asia. But the biggest surprise in this latest development is he appears not to have left a will. 
U.S. President Donald Trump has lashed out at his French counterpart for his recent comments about NATO in what is an acrimonious start to the alliance's 70th birthday meeting in Britain. NATO was formed to counter the Soviet Union and remains a key counter to Russia and Chinese power. But Trump claims Emmanuel Macron's remarks suggesting that the NATO was suffering brain death was very, very dangerous and insulting. Nobody needs NATO more than France. And frankly, uh, the one that benefits really the least is the United States. We benefit the least. We're helping Europe. Europe unites and they go against a common foe. Uh, That may or may not be a foe. Can't tell you that. But there are other foes out there also. But I think nobody needs it more than France. And that's why I think that when France makes a statement like they made about NATO, it's a very dangerous statement for them to make. Lastly, representatives from African countries are gathering in Angola for a meeting to discuss internet policies and ways to enhance connectivity and inclusiveness for everyone on the continent. The four-day meeting opened this morning. Arthur Davis Sikopo reports. The meeting, organized by the African Network Information Center, or AFRINIC, has seen a number of countries from all parts of the continent gather to look at internet policies on the continent and how Africa can tap full use of these resources with a view to link it to continental development. AFRINIC is one of the five internet registries around the world that offer IP addresses to African countries. Channel African News, I am Onilin Sinsi. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Barely a week after visiting to Cameroon of the tripartite delegation of the Commonwealth, the African Union and the International Organization of La Francophonie has uh, again called on the government to intensify efforts to restore security, justice and the conditions of the resumption of the normal life in the English-speaking regions affected by the separatist crisis that has killed over 3,000 people. The delegation says it is convinced that uh, dialogue remains the preferred path for peace to return. Moki Kinzeka reports from Yaoundé. Musa Faki Muhammad, chairperson of the African Union Commission, says after exchanging views with Cameroon President Paul Biya, Prime Minister Joseph John Gute, representatives of the main political parties, religious leaders, youth representatives and a cross-section of Cameroonians, the organizations are convinced that there is a yearning for peace to return to the restive English-speaking regions. Nous avons eu à relever la pertinence du grand débat national, des conclusions. He says they noted that a majority of Cameroonians welcomed the convening of the Grand National Dialogue from September 30 to October 4, in which Cameroon's government consulted with political party leaders activists, opinion leaders, traditional rulers, lawmakers and clergy and are anxiously waiting for the government to implement its recommendations. Those recommendations include establishing some sort of special status for the minority English-speaking regions, 
to be considered by the country's parliament. It also backed enforcement of the constitutional language giving English and French equal status and saying they must be used in all public offices and documents. It also backed continuing the process of decentralization by giving more powers and resources to local councils. Muhammad participated in the tripartite mission with International Organization of La Francophonie Secretary General Louis Moshikiwabo and Commonwealth Secretary General Patricia Scotland to encourage national peace efforts. Muhammad said after their meetings in Yaoundé, they observed that a large majority of Cameroonians supported the convening of the major national dialogue and believe it aided their quest for peace. He said they were convinced that dialogue remains the only path to peace and asked the government to implement the recommendations of the national dialogue. After the national dialogue, hundreds of prisoners were freed when Bia ordered a halt to court proceedings against them, saying he was implementing the recommendations of the dialogue. However, Albert Mvomo, an official of the opposition Cameroon United Party, says Bia's government has not been doing enough to solve the crisis. He says the AU, OIF and Commonwealth delegation should have proposed sanctions to force Bia to solve the crisis. Quand on parle de la résolution de cette crise, n'adressez pas les doléances au pouvoir de Yaoundé. He says the three organizations, like any international organization, should force the government in Yaoundé to solve the crisis in the English-speaking regions through economic and diplomatic sanctions. He says Cameroon's government shows no serious sign of wanting to stop the crisis. Vomo said the growing number of displaced people in towns and villages in the French-speaking regions showed the government has not been doing much to stop the separatist conflict. Simon Monzo, an Anglophone leader who took part at the National Dialogue, says while some recommendations would require legislation, Cameroon should have started showing serious signs that it wants peace to return by restoring public infrastructure and villages and towns destroyed by the fighting for the population to return. We expect the government to maintain the momentum through the implementation of the recommendations of the dialogue. Some of them require legislation, others don't. For example, the building schools and bridges and all of that, you don't need legislation for that, except in terms of budgeting. Now, there are other aspects that will require modifying the constitution. Separatists have insisted on social media that they do not recognize the outcome of the national dialogue and will be ready to negotiate with the Yaoundé government only on the terms of the separation of the English-speaking and French-speaking parts of Cameroon. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundé, Cameroon. Now, despite pressure to return to classes, Iraqi students say they will not stop protesting until their demands are met. For two months, protesters have been uh, taking to the streets in Baghdad and towns and cities across the mostly Shia south to demand jobs, basic services and an end to corruption. 
Prime Minister Abdel Abdul Mahdi has since resigned and now leads a caretaker government with limited powers. Humanitarian organizations have meanwhile expressed concerns about the use of violence and loss of life during the ongoing protests. In order to discuss this further, we are joined on the line by James Matthews, communication manager at the International Committee of the Red Cross in Iraq. James, thank you very much for joining us. A pleasure. Good afternoon. Uh, Very good afternoon to you too. Now, the organization says it deplores the use of violence and the loss of life during the ongoing protests. How bad is the situation at the moment in actuality? Well, our teams on the ground have seen a rising number of casualties. Um, reports out there talking of uh, hundreds of dead, uh, around 400, mm-hmm. and um, close to, um, or rather more than 15,000 wounded. So what we're seeing are, are patterns of violence that have, uh, have so far caused um, a worrying number of, uh, of casualties, and we deplore the loss of life and violence in, uh, associated to the ongoing protests here. And... Uh, Has the Iraqi government come out to explain why security forces are using force or has the government been silent all along? As a humanitarian organization, in terms of um, reaction, is to, to look to try and attenuate the, the consequences of, uh, of that violence rather than look uh, to, to the politics of it. Um, but clearly, you know, there's a need for, for restraint to stop these patterns of violence and prevent further loss of life and to not accept it as the norm. As you know, these protests have been going on in Iraq, centered on Baghdad and the south of the country since the beginning of last of, uh, of October, so uh, close on for, for two months now. And um, citizens clearly have the right to express themselves peacefully without fearing for their physical safety. And security forces also have a, a duty to maintain order, um, but firearms and live ammunition should be used as a last resort. And the use of force by security forces must always be proportionate uh, to the situation and an, ex- and an exceptional measure. So these protesters are demanding jobs, basic services, and an end to corruption. How bad is the situation with regards to those things that they're demanding um, respectively? Mm-hmm. Again, as, uh, as a humanitarian organization, these, uh, these consequences that we're seeing as, uh, of long-term issues, um, our work here is related to the humanitarian consequences of armed conflict and situations of, of armed violence. And we also seek to prevent suffering uh, by promoting humanitarian law or universal humanitarian principles. In terms of the revindications of the protests, it's, uh, it's not really our position to, to, to comment on those, uh, on those uh, claims. All right, and we also understand that the healthcare workers have also come under attack during the protests. What update do you have with regards to this? 
So the ICRC's work is closely associated with uh, support to medical services, and we're constantly in contact with um, with counterparts uh, at uh, in the Iraqi Red Crescent Society, and also as well, of course, with the Iraqi health authorities. And we have heard and repeatedly heard distressing reports about the targeting of health workers, of ambulances, and uh, and medical facilities, and these include. Um, attacks against or the direct targeting rather of first responders of, uh, and the use of crowd control measures in the proximity of, uh, of health facilities and these clearly put patients and medical staff carrying out their essential roles in this kind of context at risk and, uh, and those reports we, we continue to hear and uh, and continue to to push for for the work of health professionals to be facilitated and respected so that uh, the sick and wounded can get the treatment uh, the timely treatment that they that they need and lastly james uh, as an organization what kind of assistance would you guys like to receive in order to make sure that the situation in iraq remains calm Well, at the moment, uh, we're, um, we've been able to, to supply hospitals in Baghdad across the, um, across Baghdad and across the south, um, to help them, uh, treat the, the wounded. And we've, we've also been able to provide to support to the Iraqi Red Crescent first aid teams for them to be able to carry out their, uh, their first responder, um, uh, response to, to, to the wounded in the in the process, and what we we really uh, are appealing for is uh, is restraint, is um, uh, that this situation of violence across the center and south of Iraq cannot become the norm, and that the violence and, and loss of life um, related uh, to these ongoing protests must uh, must absolutely not uh, not become the norm. All right, James, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. And that was James Matthews, Communications Manager at International Committee of the Red Cross, Iraq branch, on the line from the capital, Baghdad. A very big thank you to him for joining us. Moving on right now, the uh, South Africans are digesting a mix of negative and positive news as the petrol price is set to rise at midnight while diesel drops. Stats SA also released GDP figures for the third quarter of 2019, indicating that the gross domestic product, the GDP, has uh, contracted by 0.6%. The largest negative contributors to growth in the GDP in the third quarter were the mining and quarrying industry, which decreased by 6.1% and contributed 0.5% to GDP growth. To unpack what this means, we're joined by Chief Economist at Econometrics, Dr. Azar Jameen. Doctor, thank you very much for joining us. Good afternoon to you and to your listeners. Now, what can we make of the fuel prices, the drop in diesel and the rise in petrol specifically? There are not huge changes in the fuel price compared with what we have uh, seen uh, at different times. And in fact, this is quite interesting because a year ago, fuel prices tumbled by nearly one and a half rand a litre. And so in relation to that, a 22 cent per litre increase in petrol and a decrease of 14 cent per litre in diesel is not great. 
So what it does do is that statistically implies by comparing against a very uh, big cut a year ago, it means that the impact, even <coughs> even with petrol, where we've got a cut this time, will be in, uh, quite big in the opposite direction. It will cause the petrol inflation rate to rise quite sharply and with diesel to some extent the same. Uh, and that will uh, put upward pressure on the CPI inflation rate on its own of nearly half a percent. Should we start to panic about the contradiction of zero, uh, the contraction of 0.6% of the GDP? Um, of course, it's no good to have such a uh, dismal performance. And what it means is yet again that South Africa's economy for the fifth year in a row will have been declined will have been uh, growing by much less than the population growth rate which means that on average living standards are actually declining but there were a few rays of encouragement in the numbers firstly if you study them carefully you see that a lot of it is due to the drop in inventories and inventories can't keep falling all the time and so there should be some stabilization in coming quarters. Secondly, and probably more importantly, growth in fixed capital formation was 4.5%, and this comes on the back of uh, an increase of 5.9% in the last quarter. It's the first time in over five years that we've had two consecutive quarters of increase in fixed capital formation. And given that it is the uh, investment uh, that the company country receives that drives uh, the long-term economic growth potential. This is a positive development. The other positive development is that export growth uh, was 3.5%, whereas imports contracted by 6.8%, which means an improvement in our trade balance, and that should work through into helping the current account balance uh, when those figures are released on Thursday. Uh, so... But again, what that does tell you, it's not all bad news. There are some indications that the investment drive initiated by President Ramaphosa uh, a year ago uh, might be starting to actually manifest itself. Now, Doctor, we did see that uh, the largest negative contributors to growth in the GDP in the third quarter were mining and quarrying industry, which decreased by 6.1%. Do you think that uh, the fourth quarter might have a different story, especially with those two industries? It's possible that you may have a different story uh, uh, because those figures are very volatile. Uh, And, uh, you know, for that reason, I think you might suddenly see an improvement. One of the encouraging developments on the mining front more recently has been the a wage agreement reached between Sibania Stillwater and uh, and AMCU, uh, which means that uh, uh, industrial relations strike, which in the past has been an important dampener on growth in the mining sector, uh, may will not uh, may not be there for the fourth quarter, and therefore help uh, boost uh, economic growth uh, overall for the uh, over that quarter. And when looking at the mining and quarrying industries uh, and and where we're sitting with regards to them, 
with the results of the third quarter and looking at the fact that uh, petrol is going to rise and diesel is going to decrease, what are the knock-on effects with regards to those industries uh, and and just looking at the rise and drop in these fuel prices? I don't think fuel price changes are going to do very much to mining production um, because, uh, you know, to the extent that diesel is, is an important input into um, both mining and agriculture, um, you know, one should welcome the fact that the diesel price has come down. The petrol price has more of a knock-on effect on consumers. But as I say, uh, a year ago, uh, the reduction in the fuel prices were so dramatic that uh, these changes that we're seeing today are minor in comparison and their impact will be minor in comparison as well. And lastly, Doctor, do you think the Moody's will see this as a as more proof that SA is really not going to do better in 2020? You know, it depends very much uh, as, as to how Moody's interprets these figures. If it just interprets these figures uh, blandly as a further contraction, obviously that is negative for our credit rating because the simple uh, implication is that uh, economic growth is going to be lower yet again than it was expected and budgeted for, and that means growth in government revenue will be that much lower than was budgeted for. But uh, on the positive side, if they do uh, actually concentrate on what has happened to fixed capital formation and the way in which that has recovered in the last two quarters, well, you know, that may be seen as a ray of hope that economic growth may be in the process of turning around uh, gradually and that uh, from next year onwards we might see a little bit of an improvement, if even if it's not enormous, for a big improvement to take place we really need the government to start undertaking certain major structural reforms, such as fighting corruption, improving education, promoting small business, reducing the concentration of power in South Africa, uh, undertaking large infrastructural investment uh, programs and the like. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's certainly uh, absolutely no conviction right now that the government will undertake such, uh, to implement such uh, programs. All right, Doctor, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you. And that was Dr. Azar Jameen, Chief Economist at Econometrics. Robert Chagulani, a pop star turned politician who is known by the stage name Bobby Wine, is recognized as the new face of Uganda's opposition. But his rise to prominence has not been without its challenges. Bobby Wine's popularity is considered a threat to President Yoweri Museveni, who has been in office for more than 30 years. Join Channel Africa on Thursday, the 5th of December, for midday programs when we will have Bobby Wine in our studio. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. The 2019 Big Art Master Africa competition provides a platform for African artists to showcase their work and demonstrate the continent's rich culture, heritage and love of art to the rest of the world. 
With US$6,000 up for grabs, the 2019 Big Art Master Africa, a talent search competition which was launched in 2017, has become a highly anticipated competition for artists across the African continent. The main requirement of the competition is that the participants use big ballpoint pens to create their artwork. More from Lillian Henderson, Marketing Director at Big South Africa, a world leader in stationery. The Big Art Master competition is all about getting artists, young and old alike, to enter a competition to showcase their talent using a big ballpoint pen. And what do you aim to achieve with this competition? So for us, it's all about um, getting, first of all, um, young, talented or, or artists out there, some recognition around the art that they um, that they create around ball pens, and also to show that a pen is more than just a product that you use um, in school. You can actually use it to to have a career, to be creative. Yeah, so that's that's re- the real objective for us. So are the 2019 entries still open? No, the 2019 entries have closed. They closed at the end of um, November. We're now in the voting phase. Now take us through the process of entering the competition for the first-timers. Okay, so for the first-timers, what you would do is you would create your artwork using a big ball pen and, and you would upload it onto a microsite. And what would happen is people would go online, view your art and vote for you. So it's that simple. There's a cash prize up for grabs and an opportunity to take part in a competition that spans over the continent. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so so the competition has grown and it's now um, across Africa. So over 46 markets and, and countries have um, have entered. The prize is $1,000. Um, which will be the equivalent in, in South African rand. So that's the first prize, and a 500 is the second prize. So that's the prize up for grabs, as well as some artistry kits as well. Let me take you back a bit. Let, let's talk about last year's winner, who is um, Enoch Mlangeni. Tell us a bit about his work. What made it stand out? Yeah, so, I mean, Enoch is a really fantastic artist, um, a real passion for using pen, and... I think for you know for us as a business and um, for him having been, been a winner, he's just got amazing talent and his skill. His skill specifically with a pen, and I think he's. If you meet in art, you'll see he's such an amazing, humble guy, and um, and that really comes through in his art. But he is so talented in what he does, and he uses many mediums, not only a pen. So he created um, he created two pieces in actual fact. The first piece was um, an art piece of Winnie Madikazela Mandela, um, and the other one was of a beautiful lady as well. So what makes his artwork stand out is he has a passion for women empowerment, and if you read some of his interviews, you'll see that he is his grandmother raised him, and so he is very, very, very passionate about empowering women and strong women, you know, and bringing them to life with his art. And lastly, before I let you go, when will the winners be announced? So the winners will be announced on the fifteenth of January. And that was Lillian Henderson, marketing manager. Uh, slash director at Big South Africa on the line talking to Lebuchang Mabange. The time is now 17.30 Central African time. Let's get a quick update with regards to the news headlines. Here's uh, Onelen Sinsi. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. perspective.
The United Nations has sent peacekeepers to an area of central South Sudan where about 80 people have been killed because of fightings between two ethnic communities. Nigerian President Muhammadu Buhari has clarified that there is no fixed date to reopen the country's closed land borders. And representatives from African countries are gathered in Angola for a meeting to discuss internet policies on the continent. Channel Africa News, I am Onilin Sinsi. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. The global community is today observing the International Day of Persons with Disabilities. The day provides an opportunity to mobilize action to achieve the goal of full and equal enjoyment of human rights and participation in society by persons with disabilities. To discuss this further, we're joined on the line by Dr. Johan Pretorius, National Vice Chairperson of the Committee at DeafBlind South Africa. Uh, Dr. Pretorius, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Now, hello to everyone. Now, Doctor, could you give us a brief background of the International Day of Persons with Disabilities and why it is so important? Just repeat your question again, please. You're breaking up a bit. Uh, could you give us a brief background of the International Day of Persons with Disabilities and why it is so important? Well, the International Day that we celebrate today is a celebration of the rights of persons with disability. And we try to promote uh, participation, inclusion, uh, dignity, and equality for persons with disability. We feel that this month we have celebrated disability rights awareness from the 3rd of November to the 3rd of December. And we uh, have to enshrine the right of persons with disability, all disability, people with disability in South Africa, that they can be equal citizens for South Africa. Now, Doc, in terms of figures, do we know how many people there are with disabilities in the world today? Yes. Well, the uh, disability in South Africa, I can only speak for uh, South Africa, deafblind people, according to the 2011 census, there are 920,000 deafblind people in South Africa alone. Worldwide, we're talking about uh, in a region of 6 million deafblind people. Uh, disabled people in worldwide represent about 6% of the whole population. Wow. Um, now, despite the many efforts such as this day, why do some people still fail to understand and accept people with disabilities? Just repeat your question again, please. Despite the many efforts, such as this day, why do some people still fail to understand and accept people with disabilities? Well, it's more ignorance because people do not understand the needs for people, people with disabled people. And uh, with deafblind people especially, people do not understand the dual sensory uh, impairment of people who are both hearing impaired and visually impaired in one human body. And uh, that is very important to make sure that deafblind people are also uh, recognized people with equal rights and uh, dignity and equal access to service and information. Uh, that is what we're still uh, trying to promote with awareness sessions to tell the public and society what deafblind actually means. All other uh, part of 
disabled sectors also need awareness sessions where they have to be included. Uh, that is inclusivity and also to be able to participate fully in society. But there's more ignorance of society which exclude people with disability. And speaking of the exclusion of people with disabilities, uh, what do you think is the most critical barrier that this group of people face and what should be done to shift things around? Well, this is what we do with this International Day for Disability and uh, to talk to government and we have to use the United Nations Convention on Rights of Persons Disability of 2007 and also South African White Paper that was accepted in 2015 to make sure that people with disability rights are enshrined and uh, to ensure in what way they can be accommodated reasonably in workplace, in uh, training education facilities. So uh, that is where education comes into for society. And uh, lastly, has enough progress been made to ensure the full and effective participation of persons with disabilities in society on an equal basis with others? Just repeat the question again. Would you say that enough progress has been made to ensure the full and effective participation of persons with disabilities in society on an equal basis with others? Well, I would say a lot of progress has been made since 1994 uh, in a new democratic South Africa with our legislation we had, but the one uh, sphere in which I found that we still have to do a lot is with basic education, because with basic education, most uh, disability sectors, but especially deafblind, are excluded from proper education because uh, the teachers are not trained properly to accommodate uh, people with disabilities, especially deafblind. We have found that fully deafblind children are basically excluded from basic education because government and basic education are still not providing teachers who are trying to do Braille and South African sign language to uh, educate children who are fully deafblind. So especially for basic education, we still have to do a lot uh, to empower people with education to be able to be employable one day. All right, Doctor, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for the opportunity. And that was Dr. Johan Pretorius, National Vice Chairperson of the Committee of Deaf Blind South Africa. The time is now 17.37 Central African time. This is still Africa Digest with myself, Samora Mangesi. Just a reminder, Spotlight Africa, a feature program that showcases and highlights African issues from an African perspective, can be heard every Wednesday at 1000 hours UCT, with repeats on Wednesday at 2000 hours, Thursday at 300 hours, and Sunday at 1300 hours UCT. Listen to Spotlight Africa a program that interrogates issues from an African perspective. Spotlight Africa.
World leaders have gathered at the 25th Conference of the Parties, otherwise known as COP25 in Madrid, Spain, to discuss climate change, a summit that could make or break the world's climate commitments. The gathering was supposed to take place in Chile, but was moved due to the civil unrest in the country. Under the Paris 2015 agreement, more than 200 nations committed to keeping global warming to well below 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. But the, the agreement... Uh, has faced many challenges, which include the United States' intention to withdraw from it. For more on the Madrid summit and its significance, Channel Africa spoke to Christian Vessels, founder and managing director of the solar energy solution provider Daystop Power in Lagos, Nigeria. I'm cautiously optimistic because I feel that a lot of scientific evidence, a lot of the public opinion supports actually a reversal of a policy and the way how we run actually our economies, particularly the larger economies in the Western world over the last decades that led to a point where I feel we're not quite sure even anymore whether we are already at or behind a point of return. Mm. But having said this, being cautiously optimistic also feels like a wake-up call for everybody to do also in Africa Mm. where we operate to do whatever we can to actually stop the, uh, the root causes of climate change and really turn to very practical action individually as corporate and in our communities. Now, we know that uh, parties are said to be debating the mechanism in the uh, Paris Agreement which allows emissions trading between nations. But there are, of course, concerns, uh, Christian, that the trading regime may lack transparency and accountability. What are your thoughts on this? I think generally it's a good idea to turn to uh, market mechanisms and to trade Uh, CO2 certificates. But I'm afraid that the solution will not only come from there. I'm afraid that a a grand design, a a larger system that is is building all our hope only on trading essentially the right to pollute the environment will not be sufficient. So therefore, I would much rather say that we turn to a policy in which all the individual countries which are present at the, at the conference in Madrid really critically review what they can actually contribute in uh, fostering um, our efforts and safeguarding the environment. So mm-hmm. therefore, I'm, I'm actually concerned that we discuss a very complex, very theoretical construct which ultimately doesn't bring any positive momentum in what now is urgently needed, and that is action for safeguarding the environment. And speaking of things which, uh, you know, uh, could affect negatively um, the road to that uh, um, place where we find ourselves doing what is right, do you believe that tensions between uh, China and the EU over uh, the proposals for a carbon border tax could complicate matters even further? Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, as a matter of fact, what we observe is not only the conflict between the European Union and China, but broadly speaking, between the US, the European Union and China seems to lock, uh, bring us in a gridlock situation in which we, that we are not living there. And I'm, I'm, I'm in uh, West Africa and I spent my time in Nigeria where we operate a renewable energy company. So it almost feels that we are bound to observe what actually larger powers decide for the world when it often seems that these discussions are interwoven with discussions on trade, discussions on political matters, when ultimately we, are, we really have one mission now, and this is to, to safeguard the planet. So therefore, yes, I am concerned, 
um, what comes out of a situation which seems to be really complex and which still climate matters don't seem to have a priority compared to trade talks compared to winning uh, a political power play. Well, in an effort to uh, fight climate change, of course, the UN announced two months ago that uh, Gabon would become the first African country uh, paid with international funds to preserve its rainforest. Now, how important is the African forest in the fight um, against climate change? Now, I think um, the African forest, and generally the way how we, how we respond in Africa to the threats of climate change are very important. Because despite... What we earlier said that it seems often a discussion of a Western world of industrialized nations that seem to don't come around to question how they contain their growth, how they change the way, how they operate their economies. Ultimately, we in Africa will be affected by, by climate change. And I, I'm afraid that actually, particularly, we will see a lot of negative impact on some of our poorest members of the community. So therefore, efforts also in Africa that, number one, change the current practice of using fossil fuels for not only transportation, but also for producing energy, but also the, the, the lack of importance that is given to, for instance, safeguarding forests and nature in general, um, that has to change. It is, for me, astounding that, to see that a country like Nigeria, by the way, together with India, is one of the two countries globally that manages to burn more than 10 billion liters of diesel every year to produce electricity. And, and therefore, yes, there are many things that we need to do in Africa to also contribute to uh, contain the effects on climate change. I'm an actress. I'm a motivational speaker. Born with albinism, um, the nurse first asked my mother, is your husband white? My mother said, no, why are you asking me that question? When I grew up, there was no publication of person with albinism disappearing, mm. being stolen. You see, it was happening, but there was no exposure as it happening now. Hi, I'm Kule Mulebazi, the presenter of the Albinism Report a program that demystifies myths and mysticism on albinism, highlighting challenges and achievements of people with albinism. Tune into the Albinism Report on the following times, Monday, 5 past 9 in the morning to quarter to 10 Central African time, and from 5 past 10 to quarter to 11 Central African time, Tuesday at 5 past 2 in the morning to quarter to 3 Central African time. The Albinism Report. An enlightened narrative with me, Pule Mulebazi, on Channel Africa from an African perspective. And now it's time for your latest economics news. Here's Nosikia Zuma.
Thank you, Samora. Good evening. The Public Investment Corporation of South Africa says it's taking legal action to force embattled multinational company Steinhoff to give it access to the PricewaterCoopers forensic report. The report was commissioned by Steinhoff following then-CEO Marcus Eustace's abrupt resignation and the plunge in its share price after auditors flagged irregularities in its accounts. Steinhoff has published a summary of the report but has refused to release the full text as it contains confidential information. The Public Investment Corporation's Head of Legal Services, Lindiwe Lamini, explains. The PwC report becomes critical and integral in us understanding what exactly happened at Steinhoff and who's responsible for what. Um, the, so, so I think having access to that report will enable us to take the action that we need to take. And as I've indicated, we did issue a letter of demand to Steinhoff um, about two weeks ago requesting this report, failure of which we are in the process of launching our application to compel Steinhoff to release that report. Meanwhile, the South African Government Employees Pension Fund has invested heavily in Steinhoff through the Public Investment Corporation, hence the interest of Parliament in the matter. It is estimated that the country's pension fund fund could take a loss of around 820 million US dollars from its exposure to Steinhoff. Kenya's new Chinese-built railway should have been a boom for business. The 3.3 billion US dollar line sliced hours off the journey from the port city of Mombasa to the capital Nairobi. But importers say their transport costs shot by up by nearly 50% when they used the rail due to extra fees, more time spent clearing goods at the congested Nairobi train depot, and the need to send a truck to collect the goods from there. Nombui Selotengo reports. Importers used to track their goods in from the coast, but port authorities now say businesses based in Nairobi and upcountry must use the new line because the Mombasa port is contracted to supply it with a minimum amount of cargo. The railway's problems are a cautionary tale, both for developing nations loading themselves with Chinese debt and for China as it seeks to expand global trade links and project soft power through its massive belt and road initiative. Daniel Manduku, head of the state-run Kenya Ports Authority, says KPA has an obligation to feed the railway as they were in the guarantees of the rail. Zimbabwe's late former president Robert Mugabe has left behind 10 million US dollars in the bank and some properties in the capital Harare, but there is no will naming his beneficiaries. The extent of Mugabe's riches has far for many years been a source of speculation. Zimbabweans assume that Mugabe, who died on September the 6th, together with his family, amassed a vast fortune over his 37 years in power, but there are a few hard facts about their wealth. The Herald News report that Mugabe's daughter Bona Jigowore in October wrote to the, mas- to the Master of High Court seeking to register her father's estate, which included 10 million US dollars held in a local bank, four houses, 10 cars, one farm, his rural home, and an orchard. Vodacom says it has noted the release of the Competition Commission's Data Services Market Inquiry Report as well as the Communications Regulating Body ICASA's discussion document into mobile broadband services in South Africa and will respond within a specified time frame. Vodacom has pointed to what it says are inconsistencies between ICASA and the Competition Commission's report on data pricing and spectrum allocation. The Competition Commission has given both Vodacom and MTN two months to reduce 
reduce prices by 30 to 50 percent or face prosecution. Vodacom spokesperson Byron Kennedy says they've reduced data prices by 50 percent since 2016. Vodacom has consistently stated that delayed spectrum allocation has impacted the rate at which data prices could have fallen. Vodacom has reduced the effective price of data by circa 50% since March 2016. Vodacom will respond to ECAS's market inquiry discussion document within the specified time frame. With regard to the Competition Commission report, we will engage with the Commission on the matters that arose in the report and will comment further in due course. For your financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 360.41 Nigerian Naira, 10.71 Botswana Bula at 101.53 Kenyan Shilling and at 14.61 Zambian Guacha. In base currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 4.22 Brazilian Rule, 64.25 Russian Ruble, 71.51 Indian Rupee, 7.03 Chinese Yuan and at 14.61 South African Rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 77 pence to the British Pound and at 90 cents to the Euro. Looking at commodities, gold is trading at $1,461 and platinum at $897 per ounce. The price of brand crude oil is $61.15 a barrel. At least uh, we are now towards the end of the first hour of Africa Digest. We are going to cross on over to the sports desk where Neto Chimani is standing by to give us your latest sporting news. Thank you, Samara, from the Sports Desk. A very good afternoon. Starting off with football news. The Sports Disputes Tribunal, SGT, has cancelled the Football Kenya Federation elections, which were set for Saturday. And the ruling delivered by SGT Chairman John O'Haga says there wasn't enough public participation on the elections. He also ruled FKF's electoral board was not properly constituted, as Elena Shiveka isn't eligible to sit on it. The branch elections, which were conducted last week, were also cancelled, with FKF ordered to plan for fresh elections involving all stakeholders. The cases had been filed by, among others, former FKF President Sam Nyamweya, Alex Olemagelo, Stephen Buru and Moses Agarangam. On to cricket news. Captain Dane Villas admits that confidence is high in the resurgent Deben Heat camp as they beat for a third straight Mzanzi Super League MSL win when they travel to log leaders Paul Rocks tomorrow. The men from Kozul Natal beat the Cape Town Bleeds and Nelson Mandela Bay Giants in their last two outings to dramatically change their prospects in the 2019 campaign. They suddenly find themselves with a chance of even squeezing into the playoff should they win big in the Winelands and the skipper admits that their all-relation facing the MSL second edition pace setters. Yeah, I think the guys are pumped. Obviously, uh, getting some momentum is what we spoke about earlier. Um, they wanted to get playing and playing some good cricket, and I think that's what we're doing at the moment, which is, which is awesome. You know? We're excited for the next uh, three games and hopefully uh, potentially more. 
it's on our side to, to play against because they've, uh, they're quite far ahead of us and we need to catch up points. So the, the best way to catch up points is to play against the side and do well against them. So we want to do well um, against them. They, they are a good outfit. But I think we, we're pretty confident that we can beat them, um, especially with the way that we're playing at the moment. So we're looking forward to it. Prior to their back-to-back wins, the hit appeared to be a team that was just lingering in the bottom half of the table, following two defeats and three washouts from their first five matches. But they now look a transformed side and have 14 points from seven matches, which is fewer than the Giants and Swan Spartans, who are meeting later today. The Rocks, on the other hand, are top with 23 points, most of those accumulated at Boland Park, which has become one of the most vibey venues in the MSL edition of 2019. Villa says he is expecting another spectacle when they visit PAL. Yeah, it, is, it will be nice. I mean, it's obviously a great place to go play. In, but they've got a good crowd. I mean, we had a good crowd in the other day and we saw what an advantage that played. But, you know, like we're excited. We just want to play. I think it's going to be hopefully nice weather again. It's going to be hot out there. Um, it's a great place to go and play cricket. It's a great pitch and uh, fast outfield, big field. But I think that'll suit our game as well with, uh, with our attack that we've got at the moment and also with the, the power of our batting as well. There was also a record chase by the Heat in the match before that against the Blitz, where they chased down a record 182 at Newlands, which was centered around a career-best score by Villas himself. The captain struck a 75 in that game, highlighting how well the Devon side were betting at the moment. Despite both wins coming with record chases, Villas insisted that they were also good enough to set a score and begged his team to come out on top, no matter what they did first to tomorrow. No, I don't think it's a, it's a massive issue. Obviously, we've got uh, unbelievable death players. We've got, obviously, Ebo, who leads it there from uh, from the death, um, or up front in the power play as well. And we've got, obviously, um, Lucy and Delia, how they've bowled um, in, in power plays and in the death for us has been fantastic. And then we've got a, a young talent in Marco Janssen. The way he bowled other nights in Durban was fantastic at the death. It was incredible. And then, uh, obviously, with the bat, we've got a lot of experience. You've got, we've got guys like David Miller, uh, and Dile and Ravi, who have done it internationally for years and years. So, you know, we set up, uh, we're confident either way, really. If we're defending or if we're chasing a score, we, we're pretty confident either way. And finally, in athletics news. Jamaican sprinter Johan Blake has slammed World Athletics Chief Sebastian Coe for taking away track and field disciplines such as the 200 meters from next year's Diamond League. The International Association of Athletics Associations, IAAF, dropped the 200 meters, 3,000 meters stipple chase, triple jump and discuss from its list of core disciplines at Diamond League meetings in 2020. The Athletics World Body said its decision was based based on an online research in China, France, South Africa and the United States and post-event surveys in Belgium, Britain and Switzerland. It said the aim was to reduce the length of the Diamond League meetings to feed a 90-minute international broadcast window. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto and Itio Chamani. This is Africa Digest.
And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. Be sure to join us again from 1900 hours Central African time for more news from an African perspective. You can send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or send us a WhatsApp to plus 2776-300-3327 and you can tweet us at channelafrica1. Taking us to the top of the hour is Mkulum Sebenze by Kayam Tetwa.